Hello, hello, John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to What Does That Mean? Science, health and the social fabric is our beat. In this episode, we learn why seahorses need a big dance floor, why jealousy in our friendships was rife on the primal plains, there's new research on vitamins, and we tease apart stock market mania. In our main feature, you'll hear about the insurance policy that Australian scientists are developing in case we don't get a COVID-19 vaccine anytime soon. But first... What if a community could improve its mental health with a dose of salts? You've probably heard of lithium, a powerful psychiatric drug used in the prevention and treatment of manic and depressive episodes. By working to stabilise mood, lithium can reduce impulsive behaviour and the risk of suicide. Well, with more than 800,000 people killing themselves every year around the world, why not put lithium in the drinking water? That's a question that has been seriously asked for more than 70 years. Epidemiologists from the University of Sussex analysed 415 studies carried out between 1946 and 2018 in Austria, Greece, Italy, Lithuania, the UK, Japan, and the USA. All the evidence pointed to one conclusion. Geographical areas with relatively high levels or concentration of lithium in the public drinking water had correspondingly lower suicide rates. Until better design trials are carried out, the findings stand as a well-supported hypothesis. The authors, including psychiatrists from King's College London, have concluded that randomised community trials of lithium supplementation of the water supply might be a means of testing this hypothesis, particularly in communities or settings with demonstrated high prevalence of mental health conditions, violent criminal behaviour, chronic substance abuse and risk of suicide. No doubt there are communities that would welcome such an experiment, but it's an easy bet that politics and conspiracy theories will be serious roadblocks to these experiments and to a broader uptake of the idea. Just about every day we hear of progress toward a vaccine against the coronavirus, the jab that will protect us from COVID-19 for at least a while, as the flu vaccine does. But what about an antibody therapy? A Melbourne company, Affinity Biosciences, has discovered antibodies capable, and I quote here, of completely neutralising SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. With us today is Dr. Pete Smith, the CEO of Affinity. Hello, Pete. Can you start by telling us what an antibody therapy is and how it differs from a vaccine? And to what extent could an antibody therapy help restore some semblance of what we used to call normal life. Hi, John. Great to be with you. Um, Well, there's a lot there to unpick. So maybe the place to start is to talk a little bit about how vaccines work, and then we can compare it to what we're trying to do. So basically what a vaccine does is it generates an antibody response, a natural one. So your body is reacting to something that it sees as foreign, and it makes antibodies that will stick to that 
and block its activity. And, and it also calls in other immune cells to clear the virus from the bloodstream or whatever tissue the wow. virus is in. So that's how a vaccine works. It doesn't protect you from being infected, but it gives you your immune system the memory to be able to respond very rapidly next time it sees it. So it's like it's a photo fit picture of the virus that's been posted up in every police station. And as soon as that virus appears, you know, the police are onto it immediately. So that's roughly speaking how a vaccine works. Some of them work <laughs> by slightly different mechanisms, but um, yeah. I haven't heard uh, that one before, but that's a pretty, that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah, well, I mean, what you're doing with a vaccine is you're putting in either a, a killed or inactivated virus or a part of the virus, and that's what the immune system is responding to. Right. So an antibody therapy uh, is basically us finding one antibody or maybe a couple of antibodies that are particularly good at sticking to the virus and preventing it from infecting cells. That's basically what we're talking about when we're thinking about neutralization. So we in the lab went and looked for a single antibody that could do that job. And that's what's referred to as a monoclonal antibody. So all the antibodies are the same. So your body will naturally make responses against all sorts of different parts of the viral proteins. Some will be neutralizing, some will not. Um, and that's called a polyclonal response. So the, the, the advantage of our approach is that we choose a particularly good antibody and we make a lot of it in bulk and we can give a very standardized dose to a patient or to someone to protect them from being infected. So it's very, very much like a vaccine. So a vaccine induces what's called active immunity. What we're doing is referred to as passive immunity. Your immune system doesn't have to make the antibody. We're doing that on its behalf. As I understand it, in March, your scientists began screening a library of 100 billion human antibodies looking for those that might neutralize the coronavirus. Tell us about that library and how you actually go about screening for the right antibody. Yeah, so it's a bit less like a library and more like a test tube with uh, virus particles, in fact, that present the different antibodies. And what we do is we basically, in that uh, tube that contains that, that library, that collection of different antibodies, we, we, we put the target in, the pro target protein that we want to derive the antibodies against. And we have a way, uh, actually using a magnet, to pull a, a little magnetic bead that is coated with the target, and we can pull the antibodies out from that. We then have to go and really look specifically for antibodies that do the job that we want them to. So at that point, we've got the polyclonal, the mixture of different antibodies that will be binding to different parts of the protein. Then we looked for ones that specifically inhibited the interaction of the spike protein of the virus. That's the blobby bit that sticks out from the, the viral surface and, and inhibited its ability to interact with the human receptor, uh, which is ACE2, and that's how the virus gets into the cell. So if we block the interaction of the virus with its receptor, it can't get into the cell because the virus can't do anything without getting into the cell. It has to get inside that human cell to replicate itself and then, then the virus gets shed uh, and then it goes and infects more cells and then it gets sneezed out and goes and infects somebody else and that process goes on and on. Once Affinity had selected its antibody candidates, the next step was to test them against the coronavirus. These tests were carried out by Professor Carter Subaru at the Doherty Institute. 
Professor Subaru is the director of the World Health Organization's Collaborating Centre for Reference and Research on Influenza. I asked her to explain what the testing involved. We use um, the SARS coronavirus in the lab and we make serial dilutions of the antibody, of the affinity antibody, and we add the same concentration of virus to each of the dilutions of the antibody. And after a period of incubation, we put that mixture onto cells that can be infected by the virus. And we're looking for the dilution of the antibody that can block the infectivity of the virus. So just two things there. The cells actually come from from monkeys, monkey kidney? Yes. So we use viral cells, which are derived from African green monkey kidneys, and they're well-established cell line that is often used in laboratories. And the SARS coronavirus 2 actually infects viral cells very efficiently. Okay. And when you talk about the various dilutions of the antibodies, basically you're testing for at what strength of the uh, antibody is d- does it become efficacious uh, in neutralizing the virus. That, that, that's right? Yes, that's absolutely right. It gives us a concentration of the antibody that can completely block the infection caused by a given number of units of virus. So what happened when you did this with the affinity with the affinity antibody? We found that the affinity antibody blocked the ability of the virus to infect cells. So this is what virologists call neutralizing activity. So the, um, the antibody was able to neutralize the ability of the virus to infect. Have you been testing other antibodies from, from other sources? We're in the process of doing that now. Right. So uh, Affinity was one of the first. Yeah, we have been looking at some of the others, but they're sort of in progress. Um, we are using the same assay to look at the antibodies in people that have recovered from COVID-19. Um, and we're looking at um, using the same assay to look for the ability of some vaccine candidates to induce antibody in, in animal models. And with the affinity antibodies, um, were you surprised at how well it did? Yes, it performed um, very well. Okay, so now we know. The affinity antibodies can neutralise the virus. The next step for the company is to raise money for manufacturing of the antibodies ahead of clinical trials. I suggested to Pete Smith this wouldn't be easy with all manner of COVID-19 projects competing for development funds. Well, in, in fact, if, uh, if you look at what's going on, particularly in the US, uh, you know, the US government is handing billions out for therapies, diagnostics, vaccines, uh, and that's actually created a, a significant boom in biotech in the US. You know, huge contracts being handed out. Yeah. So at one level, it's getting easier to do that. However, we have to be realistic. We're a small Australian company. You know, we're not uh, a large multi-billion dollar organization in America where the money is being handed out. And that, that includes grants from groups like uh, BADA, uh, which people would probably have read about. So what we're really seeking to achieve is something that can be deployed locally. Uh, We don't know when the vaccines are going to be ready. We don't know how well they're going to work. We certainly don't know when we're going to be getting first doses arriving here. 
So the way that we're pitching this to, to government and others is this is very much like an insurance policy. If, if we have a, an antibody that we've made and we know it's safe and we know we can scale it up, we're, we're ready for whatever happens in the future. And that could be that it's completely unnecessary and there's no need for our therapy. But if, for example, the vaccines take longer or are less effective or don't work in the elderly, then I think we need that insurance policy to fall back on, knowing that then you can open the borders, you can allow people to travel because you have a, a tool, a therapy that will snuff out any problem as it arises. So that's really how we're pitching it. So we're not, we're not going out to the public markets or to investors to raise money for this. We're working with the Gates Foundation through the La Jolla Institute in California. Um, and we're also talking to government groups here about the potential funding of this, uh, uh, of this antibody. When I've read about antibody therapies, it's largely in the context of being given to uh, healthcare workers and protecting them and uh, yeah. with, with a view it might protect them for weeks at a time. I don't know whether that means then that they're given the antibody serially. But is there, when you talk about people then going overseas and, 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 and restoring some, some normality really, do you envisage then the antibodies basically going into the, into the wider population? No, not really. I think, you know, let's, let's, let's again compare with vaccines. A vaccine is cheap to produce and hopefully, uh, and in most cases, does give you long-lasting protection. An antibody, you're absolutely right. It, uh, like any, any, uh, any drug or any therapeutic, it has a half-life and after a period of uh, maybe a month, uh, you'll, you would need to be re-injected and they're expensive. So it is absolutely not uh, a treatment or preventative that could be deployed across an entire population. That would be unrealistic. It would be far too expensive. Uh, and of course, you know, would people really be going for a monthly injection? No, I don't think so. So really what we would be focusing on are high-risk groups. So for example, if there was a case of COVID-19 in uh, an aged care facility, well, you could inject the people who are in that facility and you've then got a month or so to be able to get the infection under control and quarantine people, but you could protect those people during that period. So that's one area. Or frontline healthcare workers. Um, and of course, we could treat people with this. You know, the disease is the time when your immune system hasn't got control of the virus. So when, it, when you first get infected, you have no immunity and the virus is replicating completely unchecked. And the disease is basically the time it takes your immune system to catch up and start controlling the virus and getting the viral levels coming back down. And so what, what, what our therapy could do is basically start that immune process much, much faster. So you're immediately neutralizing the virus. And as I said earlier, you know, the, the, the virus is constantly infecting new cells, replicating, infecting new cells. Uh, and, 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 of course, being sneezed out or otherwise, otherwise transmitted. So if we can break that process, then we're, we're, we're actually giving the immune system the time to get on top of the virus and to get that natural immunity. So uh, it, it would need to be proven in clinical studies, of course, uh, but um, you know, that, that has worked in you know, Ebola, uh, other, other airborne viruses. So there's, oh. a, there's a good basis to believe it could work. One last question. You know, this is obviously a lot of work that you've done and, and it's, that's ahead of you. But as you say, a vaccine could come along and then render it, I guess, redundant. Yes. Do you still, is there, is there still some gain for you in, in, in the fact that you've done this work? We, 
genuinely did this because we felt there was an obligation to do so. Uh, yeah. It was back in March, my chief scientific officer, Matt Beasley, came into the office and said, you know, are you reading about what's going on? You know, this is going to get really nasty. We should do this. And the philosophy was that if we didn't do it and you know, effective therapies weren't developed or vaccines weren't developed for whatever reason, mm. uh, it would be then too late to start. So we thought we, ha we have to start knowing full well that this could be a completely futile exercise. So we turned all our resources pretty much completely over to uh, screening for these antibodies and, and testing them and developing them, uh, knowing full well that uh, it might not generate any value for the company at all. But we felt there was an obligation to do so. And the same thing with the Gates Foundation. If the Gates Foundation was to adopt this, it will, they will be developing it for the developing world, uh, not the rich countries. So again, that's not a real money spinner, but it's doing good. That's right. Listen, thank you very much for coming on this morning. Thank you, John. And now, from the world of money, with our financial editor, Ewan Black. Hello, Ewan. Hello, John. Good to be with you. Thank you. So, look, the <laughs> US stock market has been hitting record highs while the rest of us have been crying in the sand. I want to ask you, is there any good news in this for the, for the little guy? But first, let's... Let's talk about why um, the market does so well when the rest of us are not. As I understand it, part of it is that the stock market's kind of betting on the future, uh, and part of that future, of course, is the vaccine. And so mm. there's this idea, mm. oh, that's going to be happening within maybe a year. Let's get on the gravy train now um, before it entirely leaves the station. Is that yeah. right? Is that, is that right? I think that's a really big part of it, yeah. And um, I mean, we can kind of see this in how um, the fact that, you know, at the beginning of the crisis, even before uh, cafes and pubs and restaurants were shut, uh, the share market is where we saw the first kind of economic impacts of the pandemic. It lost more than 30% in the value, so hundreds of billions of dollars, even before Scott Morrison had shut down the pubs and, and restaurants. So it is forward-looking. And so the fact that it's not really moving much now and, and in, in fact is continuing to rise, even though we have loads of job losses and business closures, it's because it's already priced in this bad stuff that's happening now. And it, it kind of suffered the pain before the rest of the economy. And so, yeah, and now it's got to a stage where the rest of us are kind of really suffering and losing our jobs and taking pay cuts. It's now, like you said, looking towards the future. And there's a lot of optimism around the vaccine. Another reason, of course, is that a lot of the money, a lot of the action on the market is really tied up in the big tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft. I mean, they just, they're just these, these gargantuan monsters. I know, our overlords. And they've got, yeah, also they got a lot bigger and done really well during the pandemic because, as we all know, we're bored at home. We can't go out. So we're, we're buying things off Amazon. We're, we're, you know, going, we're tuning in to Netflix and Stan and all these companies more often. Um, and this is really important in the U.S. context because if you look at uh, the market there, uh, you've got Amazon, Apple, Facebook, uh, Google's parent company, Alphabet, and Microsoft. Together, those five companies account for more than 20% of the, the overall market. So when they do well, the whole market does well. But what this hides is the fact that uh, fewer than 40% of companies on the market are back up to where they were 
before the pandemic struck, even though the overall market has now hit a record high. So in other words, uh, more than 60% of companies mm. are actually in the doldrums and suffering. Exactly. Right. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And of course, the other, the other factor is, is that the, uh, as we talked about when we talked about monetary theory, modern monetary theory, uh, reserve banks are printing money, taking this kind of uh, loan against themselves, Yep. And, of course, one of the net results of that is that cash loses value. Yeah. And so for people with money, the market's the only place to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, um, you yeah, know, what you're seeing is that a real borrowing rate, so when you, when you take into account inflation, um, the cost of borrowing money uh, in, in a lot of cases is uh, below zero. It's, so money's been given out for free. So it's kind of, you know, it, when money's going around for free, uh, no asset price can really be too high because, you know, you can always just borrow more money and pay a higher price. So it, it really is a big, big factor into this. And, and, and more broadly, if, if, you know, you think about how business works, they got, you know, they got, in, they got earnings, they got outgoings. If, if interest rates fall, then a big chunk of their outgoings falls with it. So it, it's, it stands to reason that when interest rates come down so low, and they're at record lows now, that it's just, you know, these companies are making more, the ones that are doing well are making more money. So it kind of makes sense that share prices are going up too. Sure. So let's go back to the question that I originally had. Is there any good news in this? Is there any good news in this uh, for the little guy? Hmm. Um, I'd say mostly it's uh, irrelevant for the little guy. Um, I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, there are some kind of, there are some kind of, I don't, I, I don't want to use the word trickle down because that's got a, uh, so many connotations. But I mean, when share markets go up in the past, the, the way it does help the little guys, uh, when companies are growing, they're more likely to invest, they're more likely to put on staff. So that's good, more jobs. And also, we talked about rich people earlier, earlier obviously, they have more shares than the average uh, person. When their perceived wealth goes up, then you know they feel richer. They look at the share price. They you know they, they understand their shares are more valuable, and they're, therefore they're more likely to spend in cafes and in shops. And so that money allegedly is supposed to trickle down to the rest of us. But and then, then I guess finally things like um, every Australian is exposed to the share market through superannuation. So when shares go up, uh, if you're about to retire. That's that's a great thing, right? Because you look at your your super and there's there's more money in there, uh, and and more broadly for the rest of us, if, if the share market does well, then at least our super's going up. <laughs> so something that is that is something. But uh, I think that that comment of yours that look at that's uh, largely irrelevant for yes. the little guy kind of says it all, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh boy. All right, my friend. Uh, let's talk again. Yes. Cheers, John. A new study led by Arizona State University has found that feelings of jealousy can be a useful tool in maintaining and protecting friendships. The researchers found that when friendships were threatened by another person, such as a new romantic partner or a new friend at work, jealousy was the dominant feeling. The intensity of jealous feelings varied by how likely the third party threat was to replace someone in the friendship. A best friend gaining a romantic partner 
elicited less jealous feelings than them gaining a potential new friend. Feelings of jealousy over being replaced were associated with behaviours that could overcome the third-party threats, like trying to monopolise a best friend's time and manipulate their emotions. Well, I guess we've all been there, but in my experience, succumbing to feelings of jealousy hasn't been helpful and usually ended up with me feeling worse and everybody else feeling awkward and backing away slowly. My colleague, senior editor Zona Black, has done some research of her own. What's the story, Zona? Uh, John, I did actually do my homework for this one because I really wanted to impress you. Uh, so I happened to pose a couple of questions to my own psychologist uh, to get his take on why it is that we feel so much more jealous when our friendship is threatened as opposed to maybe when our friendship is threatened by a new lover or a work colleague, as you said. He put, us down, put it down to the unconscious part of our old neurotransmitters in our brains that feel threats. It, it's, it's ancient psychology. Yeah, it's like the paleo diet for your brain. <laughs> so, All right. Yeah, so... We look at what's being threatened when there's a new friend coming on the scene. So you and I have been friends for five years and we are, you're my best mate. Suddenly, oh. you know, I don't. Yeah. And suddenly this new person starts to come along and, and suddenly you're going out for coffees with them. You're having baguettes with them, you know, and I'm feeling a little bit threatened. I'm feeling threatened because my certainty, I know that every Saturday we have baguettes together at 11 a.m. Suddenly you're having baguettes with this friend at 11 a.m. And I don't, like, I'm thrown into the blue. I don't know what's going on. It's making me feel anxious. This comes back to when we were Neanderthals and, you know, we needed to know where things were coming from. We needed to know what cave we were sleeping in. We needed to know how we were going to light a fire so we could bake the baguettes. Yeah, so we're so feeling to a degree, Yeah. I, I love the fact you're calling it our Neanderthal selves, but I, you're obviously talking about our our. our, our Early human, early human psychology. So basically, yeah, in a John, way, I'm a big a, picture girl. I don't know the details. <laughs> so this doesn't even sound. It's so even so much about the friend. It's about the things that we have in place that give our lives a bit of structure that we, we depend on. And one of those other <laughs> big things that gives us so much structure is belonging and relatedness. That sense of being part of a tribe. You're my tribe. Someone else is coming in. They're stepping on my territory. What if I can't be a part of this tribe anymore? I've got to go and face the saber-toothed tigers by myself. No one's going to be there to help me. I'm threatened. Well, look, there is all that. I, although anthropologists have, have great difficulty with the, the word tribe, but let's call it group. Let's, let's try okay. and let's – but, you know. Okay. Um, so there's the questions of belonging. Look, that all makes sense. Or In real you? life, though, jealousy, it, it's, it's a hard one because you can have these feelings – um, say about, and say someone new comes along and you see this happening and they're getting close and they're having a great time and it's not you and so on and so forth. You're in a position where I think it's very hard to do anything about it. You've, you've really got to suck it up without making a bit of a, an idiot mm -hmm. of yourself, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I said to my psychologist, I said, bill me another hour, but if someone finds, me, finds themselves in this position, what's the best thing that they can do? And he said our, our natural instinct might be to overcompensate, to try and smother right. the friendship or to try and smother this third person. 
So, you know, really just force friendship upon them because, hey, if they're friends with my best friend, we must have something in common, right? We must be able to be best <laughs> friends too, right? 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 Well, there's two things there. Whenever anyone has said to me, listen, you've got to meet Phil. You guys are going to get along so fantastically. And every time I meet Phil, I hate him. I've but never look, met a Phil he- I like. There you never. go. Look, uh, the paper sort of says feelings of jealousy over being replaced were associated with behaviours that could overcome the third-party threats, like trying to monopolise a best friend's time and manipulate their emotions, as I said. Now, they call this, these behaviours are called friend-guarding. They occur across cultures, they reckon, also in non-human animals. They cite the example, female wild horses are known to bite and kick other female horses, I guess through feeling possessive. Mm -hmm. None of that sounds particularly healthy. No. Uh, But they do make the point that not all friend-guarding behaviours focus on trying to control a best friend. Uh, It actually spurs some people to commit to being a better friend. There's still a competitive aspect to that. But I guess that's not a bad thing. No. It's not. And there there is the other path as well. And that's something I think it was Abraham Lincoln said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him. And so oh, look at this third good. look at this third person, not as a third person, but as a person. Make a genuine effort to form a genuine, authentic connection with them. Very good. Thank you very much, Sona Black. Thank you so much, John. It has been a pleasure to hear your voice. Vitamins and minerals. Some interesting news. The prevailing advice is that eating a well-balanced diet provides all the micronutrients we need and that overdoing it with supplements, especially vitamins E and A, can make you ill. From a dose of the runs to liver damage, brain swelling and damaging your unborn child. So there's that. However, the World Health Organization notes that micronutrient deficiencies are common in elderly people due to a number of factors such as their reduced food intake and a lack of variety in the foods they eat. And the sad factor is foods rich in micronutrients, fish, dairy and leafy greens are simply unaffordable for many older people. Meanwhile, as we age and the quality of our diet heads south, our immune function declines leaving us more vulnerable to sickness. A new study from the Oregon State University and funded by a grant from Bayer, the pharmaceutical giant, asked the question, can multivitamin and mineral supplements serve as a boost to immunity function in older people? Specifically, they looked at the white blood cell's ability to kill the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus, more popularly known as Golden Staph. Short version, it didn't work. But there was an encouraging result that the scientists hadn't actually planned for in their study design. So let's talk about that. This was a small, double-blind, randomised controlled trial, what's often called the gold standard in drug trials. 42 healthy people aged 55 to 75 were recruited and split into two groups, 21 each. One group received a multivitamin and mineral supplement, including a high dose of vitamin C for 12 weeks. 
The other group were given a placebo. The participants had no idea which one they were getting. The group who took the supplement were found to have higher levels of vitamin C and zinc in their blood, but not vitamin D, which is a common deficiency in older people. Okay, but the group who took the supplement reported fewer sick days and less severe symptoms than the control group. The researchers report that the same percentage of participants in each group reported symptoms of illness. Those who took the supplement averaged fewer than three days of illness compared to more than six days for the placebo group. This adds some weight to the claim that zinc and a high dose of vitamin C may reduce the severity of a cold. The researchers suggest bigger trials are warranted. I suggest plenty of fruit and vegetables if you can afford them. Oh, for goodness sake, it's seahorses. Not, look, anyway, we're talking with Robbie McCracken, aquarist and seahorse expert at Sea Life Sydney Aquarium. In October 2019, uh, breeding pairs of white seahorses, including some pregnant males, were collected from Sydney Harbour as the seed stock in a breeding program to help the species recover from population decline. Robbie. Hello. How many how many pairs were collected, and how how do you identify a, a breeding pair? Oh, that's an excellent question. So yeah, in October 2019, we collected um, five pairs of seahorses, uh, and I guess the way that you can identify them as a breeding pair is uh, they're pretty close together and pretty inseparable. Uh, actually, it's one of the few I guess romantic love stories when it comes to the underwater <laughs> world. Why is that? Why do they stick together like that? Um, that's a really, I guess that's a really good question. And, and the seahorses probably are the only ones with the best answer. But um, it's pretty impressive for an, an animal that's so so delicate um, and I guess has to put in so much effort to, to reproduce and survive, to pick a mate and stick with that mate for uh, as long as they're breeding together. And so they'll um, pick a pair for whatever reason, usually the male's the best dancer, I guess. He dances well and she's into it. These were originally named White's seahorses, but they're popularly known as Sydney seahorses. Although they populate most of the eastern coast of the country, they thrive among sponges, seagrasses and soft cauliflower corals, all of which have been in decline. As I understand it, two things have really uh, uh, damaged their their habitat, and that is tends to be either boating or mooring activity, but also the shifting of sand. I think up in Port Stephens they had this a tremendous amount of sand that came in, and and so you'd have this sandy bottom, which of course is no good to seahorses because they've got nothing to hang on to. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, absolutely true. I guess the loss of habitat is, I guess, it has been quite extreme with um, not just anchors and moorings and boat lines. That that is quite damaging to seagrasses, which are very very fragile, fragilely planted inside the seabed. But when you get um, large amounts of suspended or moving sand and substrate, that will, I guess. Uh, overtake or block out the ability for the seagrass to grow through it and, and and as well as stop those encrusting anchoring organisms where at a planktonic stage need some place to stick onto. And if that's not there, there's no places for the seahorses themselves to anchor themselves to. It becomes a very unsuitable place for them to live. Now at the um, Sea Life Aquarium, 
How was the breeding program? Was that a particularly difficult thing in that artificial environment, or did they just they just go at it as they normally do? I guess there's there's two answers. It was very challenging. It was a very challenging project in the sense that they're very demanding, a very demanding, a very fragile animal, um, and it's a species that that we've not bred before. So it took some fine tuning of our, I guess, more technical methods in the way that we kept them to really find the the sweet spot to encourage them to continue to breed. Um, they're effectively insatiable. They, they require a lot of food. So finding the best way to satiate these animals was a, another bit of a trick that took some time to figure out. But as far as holding them and caring for them here at Sea Life Sydney Aquarium, we were able to really quite effectively replicate their natural environment inside one of our displays. So the big challenge, as you're sort of saying, was feeding them enough and, and what, replicating uh, were they reluctant to breed unless what water temperature was a certain way? There was a certain amount of movement in water. What what got in the way of it? I guess when it comes to seahorses and breeding, it's all about setting the correct mood in the sense that um, there's a few elements and I guess a few mating rituals that the animals, the parents will need to go through for um, mating to be successful. Um, so I guess when we start with that, one of the, and it's pretty incredible to see in person um, one of the coolest, I guess, parts about their mating ritual, in my my opinion, is um, they, they, they sort of do a courtship dance. And that courtship dance takes up, you know, a vertical amount of space. So there's a minimum amount of, I guess, depth the tank needs for them to be able to complete this dance. Where the, how, how, much, the, how much space do they actually need? So what we found that they needed at least a meter. So the display that we've got them in is a meter deep, and that gives them enough space to be able to... It's usually the, the boy. Um, so the girl will move, the female will move, and the male will follow her. And then once he gets in the mood, he'll sort of wrap around and do this... Uh, almost ebbing and flowing motion as they run up this, the the water column and the female and will sort of entangle themselves together. He'll present his pouch and she'll deposit her eggs into it if she's receptive to his dancing. Um, and they need that meter of space for it to be successful. Right. So how many did you end up with in terms of offspring? Yeah. Um, so we went through a few different series of births. And in, and in fact, um, some seahorses are known to pump out, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of babies. The white seahorses don't have broods quite as large. Um, we ended up with about 90 baby seahorses that we were ready and confident to release into the wild. Now, I don't know about the, it, this occurs in the whites, but I mean, some seahorse males will eat some of their their offspring, right? Um, I, potentially, I guess when a seahorse is born, it's you know about the size of a grain of rice and definitely swims and moves in a way that their food would. Um, I, we didn't notice it with any of our seahorses. Uh, I, generally speaking, the birth process is quite a violent-looking process. The, the poor thing goes through a lot of big contractions and, and spits out, you know, quite a few babies and that's not necessarily conducive to an appetite so generally so, so, speaking so the, dad, the dad's the dad's what they get a bit exhausted do they yeah uh, it, you watch their bellies contract they get really big you watch their bellies contract and babies come. it's a lot of effort they need to basically force the babies out and and, and not just one of them but but a few dozen so is the mother standing nearby going breathe breathe uh, effectively, <laughs> she's probably she's telling them to hurry up because 
it's really quite interesting. They've got it down to a science, and it's one of the reasons the males give birth in seahorses. Um, during while the male's just stating his babies, the female is busy making more eggs, and so right. within a few hours of him giving birth, she'll be all right, ready for another round. Let's go, and she'll have another set of eggs ready to to give him. And so there's really no rest for the wicked. Um, as I understand it, seahorses can actually change colour. Did this happen with your with your captives? Um, seahorses can change colour, and it's much more of a cryptic colour change, not quite as dramatic or or um, rapid as say an octopus would be. Uh, but they'll change colour largely for habitat, uh, largely for camouflage. So one of the things that we've noticed with our seahorses is uh, originally they are born um, and, and they come out a bit of a yellowy brown colour, but they quite quickly over the course of a couple of days will change to adjust the environment in which they're in. Um, so our breeding room uh, was a bit darker. We would have very usually close to black seahorses. Uh, our display has um, a bit of yellow in them and, and now they're bright yellow. Well, listen, uh, Robbie McCracken, thank you very much for talking to us today and good luck with what I guess is an ongoing project. Thank you very much, John. Pull out your tissues, have a little cry, because yes, it's time to go. By the time we meet again, it will be spring, so you'll need those tissues for hay fever anyway. Thank you for listening, and look after yourselves. <laughs>